Please be seated, accept the kiddos, you are dismissed, off you go. Uh, we are, today's an exciting Sunday, I'm always excited, the Sundays we get to open up a new book and begin a new study. Um, I've been reading through the book of Philippians, I hope that you have read those, read that little letter four, five, ten, twelve times, I've read it countless times, and it is a wonderful little letter. If I was being honest, uh, the truth is, <laughs> uh, we've been waiting to preach this letter for a long time because it's just such a happy letter. So um, I just love preaching it and thinking about it. Um, so we look forward to doing that for 26 weeks. But as we begin to do that it's, this morning, it's important that you understand where the Church of Philippi uh, came from, how it came to be. So what I'm going to do for you this morning before jumping into the text is I want to tell you the true story, a real live story that happened in history way back many years ago, some 2,000 years ago in a little town called Philippi. So if you want to, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. I'm just going to tell you that story. Acts chapter 16. Sometimes when we use the story, the word story in our life, in our sort of cultural week, we tend to think that sort of mythical stuff. This is real. This, what I'm about to tell you, the story I'm about to tell you is real. And so here's how it came about. There was a man by the name of Saul that was converted after persecuting the church. He became converted by Christ himself, speaking to him on the road to Damascus. Saul became Paul, was baptized, and began to spread the gospel and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. As he did so, churches came into being. And as those churches came into being, we, the Jews in the first century, found something strange happening. They saw Gentiles non-Jews coming to faith in Christ. And they didn't know what to do with that. And so they didn't know if they were supposed to have those Gentiles obey all the Jewish customs and things of the like. So they had this, this council in Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 where they decided the Gentiles don't need to obey all the customs. They need to repent from following idols. So Paul goes on his second missionary journey to go back and share the good news of what has happened in the life of the church. And in particular, what that decision at Jerusalem Council. So Paul and a guy named Silas set off, and they begin to go from a little town called Antioch, just uh, up north, sort of in the Middle East there, uh, north of Jerusalem. Uh, They set out in a northwesterly direction, going back to strengthen the churches and spread the good news of the gospel. Paul and Silas and another guy by the name of Timothy, these three, they're going along, they're sharing the good news, they're strengthening the churches, till eventually uh, they come to a little place uh, where Paul goes to sleep and he gets this Macedonian vision. It's called the Macedonian vision. This Macedonian vision tells him it's a vision of a man that says, come over and help us. A man from Macedonia, which is a region, north, modern day northern Greece. Paul is getting this vision as he goes to sleep in modern day Turkey. And so he gets this vision to come over to Macedonia and that answers the problem that they had been experiencing. Paul and Silas, his little team there, they had been wanting to go to Asia. But the Holy Spirit, you go read the text, it would not allow them. They wanted to go to Mysia, but they, the Holy Spirit would not allow them. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. They really, really, Paul and Silas really wanted to go up there to Asia, but the Spirit would not allow them. The Spirit kept pushing them north and west to where they get this Macedonian vision. And so they decide, Paul decides, that they're going to go over to Macedonia. They go from uh, a little town there from, called Troas, 
They sail across the Mediterranean Sea to a little island called Samothrace. Eventually, they get to this port city. Uh, in the fir- this is the first location in Europe where the gospel is now pushing in to a little town called Neapolis. Philippi is about 10 miles away from that. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and now Luke joins the party somewhere in there. Four men are now walking the road up to Philippi, a real road. They're walking up this road up to the town of Philippi. And they're going to Philippi because Philippi was a big town. It was a sort of modern day New York City or Washington, D.C., something like that. And so they want to walk there, and no doubt many people are passing them along the way, not taking any notice of these four men. As I was studying this passage this week, I thought about this because I remember when me uh, and also who else went with me, Joe and Janae and David Hill, we all went to another city similar to Philippi in the sense that it didn't have the gospel. The four of us walked through a town and no one took notice of us. And yet little did those people in Philippi know that those four men were carrying the message that was turning the world upside down. This event that happened is happening some 20 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. These four men walk into the city of Philippi. Philippi is named after Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philippi, whose name was Philip. There was a great Roman battle there in 42 uh, B.C. or A.D. No, it would have been 42 B.C., And this became, Philippi became a great Roman city. It was actually known as sort of a mini-Rome. It was very known for its its allegiance to Rome. It looked a lot like Rome. And these four men walk into this city. And as they're walking into this city, the first thing that Paul would always do on his uh, missionary journeys would would be to go into synagogues, places where Jews would gather. And he would speak the gospel to show them that the Messiah was the answer to all of their uh, hopes and dreams. But we find in, the, in the Acts chapter 16, Paul does not go to a synagogue, presumably because here they are in a Roman city, there's not at least 10 men that are Jews to gather to make a synagogue. Now this is a funny story, because it was a strange story, because yesterday as I was running, I ran by a man that was standing on a corner in Jewish, Orthodox Jewish garb, and he asked me if I was Jewish, because he needed nine other men to make a synagogue so that he could worship God. And so you know what I did? I stopped and talked to him and I told him this story and how Paul did the same thing and how Paul walked into the river's edge and he spoke of the Messiah that was the hope of the Tanakh, the the Torah, the Netuvim and the Ketuvim, the Tanakh, the story. And I talked about the gospel and how the Messiah was coming and I invited him to come and join us. I don't see that you're here this morning, but I have prayed for you. If you are here, maybe you're listening to the sermon, Um, but that's what he was doing. Paul was doing the same thing. He apparently could not find ten other men in order to preach a synagogue, uh, to create this synagogue, to preach the gospel. He goes to the river's edge because he heard that there's a prayer gathering there just outside of Philippi. And as he goes out there, he finds women gathered around the river's edge. Um, And they find that they're praying. And he begins to preach the gospel to these ladies that are there praying by the river's edge. And as he's praying... The Acts chapter 16, verse 14, there's a woman there by the name of Lydia. Lydia was known as a woman that sell, was a seller of purple goods, which back then would have mean she was really, really wealthy. She would have been a modern-day mogul of some sort, uh, somebody that had a lot of money. And so as he's preaching the gospel, Paul's preaching the gospel, the text says that the Lord opened her heart to see, to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And Paul, then she responds to the gospel, and Paul has baptizes not only her, but he preaches the gospel to Lydia's family, and her family comes to faith in Christ. And then they 
are baptized, and then boom, the church at Philippi begins. Well, on the way to that river's edge, there's a little slave girl that had a spirit of divination. And she's going around. It's sort of a funny story. She's going, following these four men around as they walk through. And she's saying out loud to them, these, are men, these, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Spirit of divination. This little slave girl saying this to him. And he, she kept saying this over and over and over and over again to the point where I'm just going to use the word in the Bible. I think it's sort of funny. But Paul gets annoyed by it. This girl's just following him around. Can you imagine? These are men of the Most High God. It kind of reminds me of a Monty Python movie of sorts. Well, they get annoyed by this, and then Paul casts out this demon in the name of Jesus, and out it comes. Out that spirit of divination comes. But the problem is that slave girl was owned by these prophets, and these, these men were sort of like pimps of sorts that were making money off of this woman. And so since Paul casts out the demon, therefore they have no way to make money anymore. He, And so they get upset and they go and they grab Paul and Silas. In particular, there's four of them, remember, but Paul and Silas were the only full Jews of the bunch. So they grab Paul and Silas, these men that have just lost their income, and they drag them into the marketplace. And they say to the people around there, they say that these men, these men that are here, they are disturbing the city, advocating customs that are not lawful as Romans. My guess is they're saying that because Paul is saying Christ was the king. Caesar is not. Well, after this, we have a sad occurrence where Paul and Silas are beaten. They're attacked by that mob badly. They're beaten, the text says, with rods over and over again. Somehow they're dragged from there into a prison. And as they're sitting in the the prison, no doubt blood pouring from their faces, arms, and hands, wearied from the day's work, Do you know what they're doing? The same thing that all of us would be doing after preaching the gospel and being beaten for it, sitting in a a cell, singing hymns to God. See, these are happy Christians, no matter what may come to them. So they are singing these hymns to God, and as they're singing these hymns to God, an earthquake begins to shake. And as those earthquakes shake, the prison cells open up, at which time the jailer, which would have been responsible for these prisoners, thinks that he has lost his life because now since the jail cells are open, all the prisoners would have fled and left. And so he takes a sword and sticks it to his uh, throat or he begins to want to kill himself because he's lost these prisoners. But out of the darkness cries the man that was just singing hymns to God. Don't do it. We're all here. We haven't left. Paul, no doubt, I'm sure, time and again, has heard the Gospel from Paul. Time and again. And he's hearing these hymns of Praise to God and jailer says in response to this amazing activity, what must I do to be saved? Paul says to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole household. And he goes and he shares the gospel with his whole household and the jailer and his whole household are saved. They are baptized. And then after that, not long after that, Paul and his company are released from prison. And there, friends, you have the start of what I call Grace Church Philippi. Maybe not quite the same story as the planting of Restoration Church, but maybe there's some similarities. We've had some strange stories of our own. No earthquakes or things alike. No slave girls following us around in Washington, D.C., although I would probably get annoyed at that from time to time, just like Paul. But that is the beginning of the church. Grace Church Philippi has started. Now, a couple years have gone by. Paul is now imprisoned in Rome, so he's imprisoned for another time for preaching the gospel. He's now likely in Rome. And as he's there in Rome, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus comes from Grace Church Philippi. They send him, just like 
Restoration Church sent me and Joe and others in the same way, did the same thing. They send Epaphroditus to Paul, who's sitting in prison. Paul is sitting there in prison, and as Epaphroditus comes to him, he brings news of Grace Church Philippi. Now, he tells them how Grace Church Philippi is doing. Now, Paul obviously would have had a great interest in this church since he planted it and he suffered for it. And apparently what seems to happen is the news that Epaphroditus brings is, one, they do love the gospel, the Grace Church Philippi. They love the gospel. They believe the truth. They care enough to be sending people to encourage workers in the gospel. But apparently Epaphroditus informs Paul that uh, the church at Philippi is having a bit of uh, disunity from within threats for disunity, I should say. They're having threats to disunity from within the church and from outside the church. So the threats from within seem to be that there is this growing temptation towards pride and arrogance inside of the church, this otherwise healthy church. There's a bit of growth inside the church of maybe some pride and arrogance, some infighting seems to be happening a bit. But in outside the church, Epaphroditus is informing Paul that there's this gospel of works that's tempting the church. And there's also this denial of the gospel as a whole that's tempting the church, which is the occasion for Paul's writing. So he now responds. So the letter that you're seeing right there in your Bible is the response to what Epaphroditus, the news Epaphroditus has brought him. And so here it is, guys. Paul is writing for the sake of unifying the church and the enjoyment of of and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to remind them of the unity that they have in the gospel so that they would enjoy that gospel. And then after enjoying that gospel and reminded of the unity of that gospel, they then advance that gospel, which is why we've entitled this sermon series, Joy Made Complete. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, Paul knows that when that happens, not only will the church be full of joy, but by that unity and because the resulting joy that they have in that gospel, they will be the most dangerous thing in all the world. And they will then advance that gospel into all of the world. So unity in the gospel births communal joy, that results in the advancement of the gospel to the lost. Unity in the gospel, joy in the gospel, results in advancement of the gospel. So Paul is writing to knock down anything that would compromise that unity so that their joy and their joy, and even I would say our joy, might be complete. And likewise, the gospel would then advance into all of the world. And so as a result of these themes, you're going to see a few other things kind of come out. He's going to have to address to encourage them in this unity. And so one thing you're going to notice is Paul's going to talk a great deal about humility, the the importance of humility. He's going to address the temptations of pride and of arrogance from within the church. We get that well-known verse in the life of this church, uh, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourself. He's going to talk about Philippians chapter 3, how of all people in the world, he was a man that could be prideful. He had everything known to man in terms of titles, and yet he says he counts it all as lost, that he might gain Christ. So we're going to see these calls for humility, and he's going to try to help them see that joy is not, tried of, joy is not found in trying to lift your name up, but laying it down for the joy of Jesus and the good of your neighbor to exalt in Christ the King. So that's two other themes that you're going to hear a lot about. Joy, 
The word joy is used some 14 times in in these four chapters. And also, another theme in here, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ is used. Are you ready for this? This blew my mind. The word Christ Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus is used four chapters, 38 times. Go back and count it. That's amazing. Four Four little chapters, 38 times the name Christ Jesus is used. I went back and did the math on it. There's 1,600 words in this little letter, and 38 times Christ Jesus is some of them. That's 2% of the letter. It's just the name of Jesus. So what do you think this letter is about? What do you think he's calling them into? So Paul wants them to be united, unified in the glory of Jesus in order that they would have joy, not in themselves, but in Jesus. That would then spin them out for the joy of Jesus and the advancement of the joy of others, uh, no matter the cost. So he's writing to stop any posturing or any positioning, any attempts to disrupt the joy and the unity that they have. He's trying to get rid of complaining and infighting and preferences above gospel priorities. He wants them to be humbly joyful in Jesus. He doesn't want them to be sidetracked by power struggles or false gospels. Paul loves this church. He loves this church. And he knows what they are capable of. And he knows what any church is capable of when this gets into the DNA. And so here we have Pastor Paul, as it were, writing to humbly encourage the church. And we, as we've said, are going to take 26 sermons in this short letter so that we can learn from Pastor Paul as he shepherds us in the way of humility, of unity, and gospel intentionality as we seek to know Christ and make Him known. And so this is our prayer, as you heard, you heard Nick say it at the beginning, that we would be what Paul prays for in 1, 9-11, chapter 1, 9-11, that we would be doing that, that our love would abound more and more with knowledge, all discernment, uh, so that we might choose what is excellent and so be blameless on the day of Christ. That's our prayer. And I hope you would take the time to pray that for this church through this series that we might enjoy the glories of Christ. So if you're not a Christian, this is going to be a great sermon for your series to listen to what the gospel is and what it creates. And if you are, if you do consider yourself a Christian and have not joined a gospel-believing local church, well, this is going to be a great opportunity for you to see the importance of the local church and the life of the believer. Hopefully, this through this sermon, you're going to see the need for you to find joy in Christ and joy in committing to His church. And for those that have joined the church, I hope that this will reinvigorate you to come closer into the life of the church. We'll talk about that in a moment. So let me go ahead and read those first two verses. And we'll think about those verses. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have here, friends, is a beautiful salutation to the church of Christ. And we see five things in there that we're going to look at briefly that encourage us or point us to in order to understand the arm of the Lord, the church. Five things in here we learn about the arm of the Lord in the church. The first thing that we see in those two verses is the posture of Christ's church. We see the posture of Did you notice how Paul describes he and Timothy? Your Bible might read servants. Some of them might say 
bond servants. Or some might even say slaves. And that's the word right there. When it says servants, the word there is slaves. Pastor Paul and Timothy, his aide, understand themselves to be slaves of Christ Jesus. And so, friends, this is the posture of the church. Servants or slaves. But I understand that word slaves might bother some of you. It tends to be a negative word, right? I mean, for obvious reasons, it tends to be a negative word. It tends to be a bad thing. And so we associate with it with things that are bad. But friends, we only associate this word slaves with bad things because it's associated with bad masters. Jesus is not a bad master. He's a good master. He's a faithful master. He's a loving master. He is the essence of all goodness, faithfulness, life. And so we, if we are followers of Christ, we should gladly say with Paul and Timothy that we are happy slaves or servants of Christ because in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. Now you'll notice that this passage right there, there's a slight deviation, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's a slight deviation of Paul's practice in salutations. So there's something different he's doing here at the beginning that he hasn't done and he doesn't normally do in other letters that he writes. And by that, I think we learn something about why he's writing. Namely, this intention for humility. See, Paul uses this same greeting in his letter to Paul, in his letter to Romans, but in every other letter that he writes, he reminds them of his being an apostle. But you'll notice the name of apostle is not in there. Not in there. It, It is in all the other ones but Romans. He does not use the word apostle. He does not remind them that he is apostle. And so he's doing that, I think, to encourage them in their humility. See, Paul is instructing the church at Philippi in order order to inform the posture that they are to take as Christians. What we are to take as Christians. We are not masters, friends, of Christ. We are servants of Christ. We are servants of Christ and we are servants to one another. See, I think, more often than not, if you were to walk into the office of Paul, as it were, he would not have his apostle degree signed by Jesus sitting up on the wall. He wouldn't. I think that he would more quickly direct you to the basin in the corner of the room where he would then wash your feet gladly. So as to remind you of what following Jesus is like. I think that's what he would be like. He would more quickly direct you to service. So Paul Paul does not use his title as an apostle here in favor of the word servant or slave because he wants the church at Philippi to understand that no matter who they are, no matter what position they hold, no matter any of these things, we are all slaves or servants of Christ. We do not conform to the patterns of the world in the church of Christ by reminding ourselves or reminding others of our accomplishments, by trying to impress people with our clothing or even our theological apprehensions. No, we're fools, all of us, servants for Christ, slaves, servants of one another, because, right, Jesus became a servant to us. That's how he defined himself. I came not to be served, but to serve. And so Restoration Church, we are servants. We are not masters. We are not accomplished people. No matter our position or acquisition of the things of God or the things of the world, we are all happy servants in the courtship of our King. And there are no masters in this outpost of the kingdom save Christ himself. And guys, that includes me. I have a degree that reads Master of Divinity. And that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
That's the most, the greatest contradiction in the world. A master of divinity. There's only one master of divinity, and it isn't me. So no, the more I learn of Christ, the more I am humbled by Christ. The more I learn of Christ and love Christ, the more I'm humbled. The more I become more like a schoolboy, not like a master. More like a servant. More like a slave. We're servants of Christ. We at Restoration Church know that we have a lot to learn. That's why we come here every Sunday, every community group, every meeting outside of those two things to learn from our master. We're glad to go and do whatever he asks of us, even if that's hard or not accepted by earthly kingdoms. Because we trust him. We're servants of him. We gladly serve him in whatever he may ask of us because we know that he's good. And how is it we know he's good? Because he laid his life down for us. That's how we know. He made a place for we weary beggars at his table. And he filled that table with the richest of foods and the best of companies. And as we feast with him at his table, we all know that none of us deserve a place at that table. Not one. Just like Lydia, we only have a place there because God in his infinite grace rescued us from ourselves. And so we are glad to take the posture of servants or slaves of our master and king, Christ Jesus, in the church. That is our posture. That is our posture. But we also see in this passage the members of the church. The members of the church. So not only are the members of the church servants, as Paul and Timothy are, but they are also saints. Saints. Paul addresses this letter to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, saints means holy ones. That's what that term means. So you might be more familiar with the way the Roman Catholic Church uses that teaching, uh, the, the way that they use the word saint. But friend, they reserve, the Roman Catholic Church uses the word saint to be reserved for the heroes or the elites of the church. But that is not the way, friends, the Bible uses the word. Not at all. In fact, the Bible uses the the word in the very opposite way. Sainthood, we see, sainthood is not for the spiritually elite, but for the spiritually poor and needy. See, Jesus said, right, don't we remember those famous words? Jesus said, blessed are the Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that, friends, that's how Jesus, or that's how Paul, I should say, saw the members of Grace Church Philippi. They were people who were poor and needy and had been given access to the kingdom because they had been made holy in Christ Jesus. Did you notice those words there? Saints in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus is the one that made them and makes us saints, makes us holy. And this should immediately remind us of the grace of the gospel. Grace of the gospel. See, Paul comes to that in just a second, but he alludes to it in this formula of being saints in Christ. No matter, friend, what you have been told, Christians are not people who have been perfected by the performance of their religious deeds. It's not the gospel. It's not what we believe. That is the formulation of every other world religion, but that is not the formulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ says says you cannot do it, therefore you must trust Jesus to do it for you. Every other world religion says the opposite. If you work hard enough and do enough good things, then I might approve of you. But not the gospel. The gospel begins with grace. begins with receiving a gift that leads to righteousness. So the gospel teaches us that God is holy. And as soon as we hear that, as soon as we evaluate that, we are mindful we are not holy. We fail regularly. And so God rightfully demands for us to be holy if we are going to be with Him, right? 
If we are going to dwell in his holy hill in heaven, we have to be holy. No matter how many good deeds or religious deeds we do, we perform, we are unable to clean ourselves up. He is the only one that is perfect. We cannot work our way to God any more than we can swim our way to Ghana. Right? So we are helpless in our sin and God still demands sainthood. He still demands sainthood. And so since we are needy, poor, and needy, what must we do? Well, we need God, the one that is holy, to so come and make us holy. Well, how will he do that and maintain his justice over sin? By sending his only son. Jesus Christ, the Lord and the Savior of all that believe. Who lived a sinless life. Who never did anything wrong. That took the posture of a servant. And laid his life down for sinners was buried and rose on the third day. And all those that trust that Jesus, believe and are changed by that gospel service of Jesus Christ, they then are justified. They get the holiness of Jesus counted to them. This is an amazing thing. For those that repent and believe on Jesus, we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are, have a union with Christ. So just as a poor pauper woman marries a king, and is deemed a princess overnight and given access to the kingdom, so are we who marry Christ and become servants of Him. We are saints. We are holy because Jesus, our King, our heavenly husband, is holy. We are hidden in Christ, and by Him we are saints. And so, friends, that's why we need all four words right there in that formulation. We are saints in Christ Jesus. We are holy in Christ. The Messiah Savior. We need all four of those words. We are not saints in ourselves. That's not possible. We are not saints in our work, but in His work. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Just like I told my friend Shua yesterday on the corner, that you cannot earn your way to heaven, friend. You can't do it. God is holy. And you must throw yourself upon Jesus and trust Him to be made a saint. And so... As the Spirit gives us life, new life, He joins us. We come together as one. And just like in any marriage where the two become one, we then take His name because He's our head. He is our holiness. But also, you'll notice in that passage there, you'll notice how Paul carefully calls them the saints in Christ Jesus. Do you notice this? Who are at Philippi. Did you catch that? At Philippi. First off, He assumes, Paul, that if you are a saint in Christ Jesus, you must be known by the other saints. Otherwise, why would he address them to all the saints? But secondly, you'll notice he says only those that are at Philippi, as opposed to being saints of Philippi, or even in Philippi. See, just like us, friends, we are saints, those of us that are in Christ. We are not saints that are of Washington, D.C. We are saints that happen to live at Washington, D.C. You see, friends, our home is in heaven. It is not here. It is not here. We just happen to be here, worshiping Him, testifying to His greatness. We are at Washington, D.C. We are not of Washington, D.C. and things of the like. I love this quote from an author that I read. Since thinking about the citizens of heaven idea, he'll come to this, Paul will, later in the letter. He says, thinking about our home in heaven, he says, on the last day when we arrive at the great cabin in the sky, many of us will be bloodied, battered, bruised, and limping. But only by God and by Christ, there will be a light in the window and a welcome home sign on the door. That's our home. And so the posture of the church is servants of Christ. The members of the church are saints in Christ. 
And those saints are organized under, thirdly, the officers of the church. So we've seen the posture of the church. We've seen the members of the church. And now we see the officers of the church. You'll see there in the text, it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with, don't lose that, underline that word, with the overseers and deacons. So the saints are with the overseers and the deacons. Saints are with the overseers and the deacons. And I think we could say the opposite and it still be true. Right? That the, overs and the, and the over, uh, overseers and the deacons are with the saints in Christ Jesus. So New Testament Christianity, friends, you should know, New Testament Christianity knows nothing of saints or of Christians that are not with overseers and deacons. That are not with them in some meaningful way. Nor does the Bible know anything of overseers and deacons that are not with other saints in Christ Jesus. It always goes together. That is the assumption of the New Testament. I realize that when I say that, here in America, we find that it's oftentimes a uh, common in our day to find self-designated Christians that operate more like lone rangers than they are those that are with pastors and deacons. I understand that in part why. Very few pastors, I think, take the time to reveal the beauty, the beauty of the church to confessing Christians. I think oftentimes pastors operate more like the PTA in that they're trying to get enough volunteers to run the chili cook-off so they can keep the PTA going, never really re- realizing the irony of that. Instead of actually showing and teaching the beauty of the church, so only more pastors or overseers would lay before their people the beauty and the priority of the church and the life of the believer, I think they would see that people would respond just like you have. Because the local church, rightly ordered and rightly directed under the lordship of Christ and God-fearing pastors and deacons is the most potent weapon on God's green earth. You might have been watching the festivities this week thinking that's where power is. Well, according to Jesus, it's right here. A beautiful testimony. Very few people have believed this, the power, the potency of the church. I think because in part, very few, few of us have actually seen the church like this. Instead, most confessing Christians use the church as long as it is convenient. And they do not often serve it, serve the church. They show up, a lot of confessing Christians do. They show up, they receive the word, and then they leave. Never striving to be with the overseers and the deacons or the other saints in Christ Jesus who were given to them for their joy. Many Christians just don't take the time to do that. They oftentimes take the words of Jesus that says it is better to give than to receive and they think that only or primarily in financial terms instead of actually understanding that that passage most notably referenced the gospel where Jesus gave his life to others. So if you're a Christian, you ought to not just give your money to a church. I'd be more interested in you. I think Jesus is most importantly. He would be more interested in you giving your life to the church with those overseers and deacons and saints who are in Christ Jesus. Very few people take the name of Jesus and have intentionally tried to place themselves with the officers of the local church. I think also because some of you have been burned by them. Some of you have had pastors or deacons that were terrible and did not act in the spirit of Christ. And you should know that God will deal with them in that. But friends, there are a lot of churches out there that have good, faithful, godly pastors that are careful and deacons that love Jesus that want to be with you. They want to be with you. You want to know how I know that? Because I serve with them every week. I serve with Nick and Joey and Chris. These are godly men. Flawed men, just like me, but godly men that want to help 
They want to serve you. They want to be with you in the love of Christ. And our deacons, Whitney and Matt and Daniel and Laura and Megan and Catherine, likewise, these are people that exude the grace of Christ. That doesn't mean that we always get being with you as Christ was with you right all the time. But it's our intention to. It's our intention to do that. So to joyfully and humbly serve the unity of the church as we seek to enjoy the gospel and advance the gospel in Washington, D.C. That's what the officers of the church should be doing. That's what we desire to do. And so if you are a Christian and you have not committed to this church or some other gospel-believing church, can I encourage you just to do that? Commit to them. Go and tell them of your intention to commit to them. And don't just do it on your own. Place yourself with the overseers and the deacons for the good of your souls and their souls. And if you're here this morning and you have committed to a church, you've committed maybe to this church, can I encourage you, please, be with us. Be with us. Don't keep yourself at a distance from us. It is our desire to serve you in the grace of God. And I trust it is your desire to serve us in the grace and mercy and love of God. I haven't even mentioned the role of these overseers and deacons. I'm just going to do that very briefly. The overseers, which is another word for pastors. Uh, The word there is bishop. Misael is the only one that's allowed to call me bishop in this church. Uh, But that's the word. It's used a couple times. Um, overseers, a grace church Philippi that Paul's writing to, they would have been men that would have been working for the labor of the gospel there. There is and would have been character qualifications for these men that would start first with that. Uh, And these overseers would have been overseeing all the work of the church, taking a look, making sure that all is faithful. The most important work of the overseer, of the pastor, is two things. The preaching preaching or teaching of the word and the praying of the word, as it were. So teaching God's people, praying for God's people. The most important things that an overseer does. And so by the will of you covenanted members of Restoration Church, I have the distinct privilege of serving as an overseer along with, as I mentioned, Nick and Joey and Chris. And Lord willing, we're going to recommend one more to you this afternoon at our family meeting. So uh, as you saints of Restoration Church place yourselves with us, you should see us shepherding you in the love of Christ. So when and if you wander from the flock, you operate in unrepentant sin in some way, or we just don't see you showing up to church. You're not even around us. In that sense, you're not with us. Don't be surprised if we come to get you. And we're doing that because we love you. Not because we're trying to build some kingdom of our own. My goodness. So we try and we have enough. What we try to do at Restoration Church is we try to have enough overseers or pastors or elders. Those are interchangeable terms. As the Lord allows and as our church needs as we grow in the gospel and in number. But deacons, they are the more formal servants of the church. That word deacon is a different word than the word servants you see at the beginning. Deacon means servant, but it's a different word, diakonos. I don't know why I just said that. Forget I just said that. It's just the word deacon. All right. So as we saw there, all saints are servants. We mentioned that. But deacons are, no, are an office in the church, as this text reveals. The, this text reveals there's two offices in the church. Overseer, deacon, they are appointed, the deacons are appointed not by their ability per se, but because of their character. They serve as the kind of shock absorbers of the church. Through the maintenance of various needs, like at our place, setting up tables or scheduling the music team, or the deacons allow the pastors to also do things that allow us to focus on the work of preaching and praying. 
teaching and praying. That's what the deacons do. As they encourage, they serve the unity of the church so that the pastors could be more equipped to preach and to pray. So when I come in here on Sunday morning, every single Sunday morning that I have been here, or at least since I've come to Restoration Church, in the early days we were doing a lot of setting up and all kinds of diaconal work. We, nobody else would do it except us. But in, So when I come in this every Sunday, all I do is come in here and preach and pray and talk to you. I don't, I don't know who puts this up, whoever it was. Thank you. It's probably Joseph, my guess is. He normally does. I don't know who set that table up out there. They're doing diaconal kind of work. Whitney kind of oversees that. There's other things. The music stuff that you see here. Uh, Daniel's working on that so as to encourage you, to equip you for the unity of the church. There's many other people I can mention. But good deacons are sort of like umpires in baseball. When they are doing well, you don't notice them. Right? But you need them to enjoy the game and to play the game. That's what deacons are like. Their humble service towards the practical needs of the church allow the church to be united in the main things. And so, friends, we've seen the posture of the church. We've seen the members of the church. We've seen the officers of the church. Fourthly, most importantly, the message of the church. The message of the church. There it is in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it goes on to say. So if you are like me, that sentence, if you're familiar enough with the Bible, you've read that sentence so many times, you just move on past it. You guys ever flown in a plane where they do the safety travel stuff, you know? When this comes down, how, how much are you paying attention to that? You don't pay any attention to it at all. If you're really, I, don't, I don't sit there and go, okay, all right, so what, how does that thing go? Click it in, lift it, pull it out. Okay, got it, good. Get the air thing first to me. Then, right, I'm, I'm over there reading my book, talking to my neighbor, the person. I always kind of feel sorry for them, right? Because they're out there doing it. Nobody's watching them. Anyway, we kind of treat this sentence like that. We know it's kind of important, but we don't really pay attention to it. Well, can I direct yourself to the safety training of your life and ministry, Restoration Church? Look up from your book or your iPhone or some other screen that's glowing in your face and look squarely into the face of the Apostle Paul as he reminds you of these important words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul commonly uses this phrase, friends, because it contains the message of the church of Christ. To the grace that he prays to the church at Philippi, the grace that he prays to the church at Philippi is the robe that the love of Christ comes in in order to lead them into the peace that they have with God. The grace of God is what leads to the peace with God. If we don't have grace, we cannot have peace. But thanks be to God, He is a God of grace. This is what He's like. God is a God of grace. He loves, God does, He loves to place gold in the hands of poor paupers that have stolen from Him so that they can have bread to eat and be satisfied. He loves doing that. That's what he's like. He loves to take sinners and turn them into saints. And that's what we needed him to be like because if his love does not move him to initiate eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel, then listen, none of us would have been saved. None of us would. Remember that story about Lydia. Do you remember that? The text says, Acts 16, 14, quote, the Lord opened her heart. Lydia didn't open her heart. The Lord opened her heart. See, the only way that Lydia could come to enjoy the gospel, see and believe the gospel, is by the Lord opening her heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so remember, don't you remember, Christians, those of you that are familiar with this teaching, remember Ephesians chapter 2. Remember the teaching that we're told. Remember what it says. We were 
what? Kind of alive in our trespasses and sins. Is that what it says? Sort of limping along in our trespasses and sins. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what else were we like? In which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's how the Bible describes us apart from Christ. We're children of wrath. We're following whatever this world wants, whatever this world's doing. We're just sort of going along with it, putting our hands up. Oh, is, that what we, is that what we like now? Okay, off we go. Following our own passions, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. That's what we used to be like. We were dead. But the verse goes on. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great mercy with which He loved us. Note when. Note when He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Note the next three words. Made us alive. Who made us alive? He made us alive by His mercy, in His love, alive together with Christ. And in the phrase, by grace you have been saved. Grace is getting receiving what you do not deserve. We're reminded of this of the teaching in, from the Apostle John in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but He loved us and gave His Son to be the wrath quencher for our sins. So amazing grace. This is why we the church, and we're going to do this in a minute, this is why we sing amazing grace. Because it's all we have. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I can see. Amen. But Paul does not only highlight the grace of God, he shows how grace, he shows, he highlights grace in order to show us the goal of the gospel. He highlights grace to show us the goal of the gospel. See, grace is important because it gives us the goal of the gospel. And the goal of the gospel we see here is peace with God. So if God is the highest and best of all things, then He would not give us grace in order to lead us to treasure anything else above Himself. It would be cruel of God. Listen, it would be cruel of God to give us grace and then lead us to try and find peace in other relationships or in wealth or in the acclaim of the world. That would be cruel of God to do that, but that's not what He did. He is all wise and all good. He gave us grace so that we would get the greatest gift of all. That we would have peace with Him. You know that affirmation you want so badly from other people? That's there because God wants you to find it in Him. Grace that leads to peace with God. The highest and best of all things. The one for whom we were made. This is the message that quite literally turned the world upside down. The message that Paul was carrying. That absolutely deadly message. Powerful message into the city of Philippi. God seeking to make sinners saints so that they could have peace with Him forever. This is the message of the church. And that very leads us naturally to the final point. The glory of the church. We've seen the posture of the church. We've seen the members of the church, the officers of the church, the messengers of the church, and finally, the glory of the church. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace that leads to peace with God, and it all comes from God. From God. So redemption, salvation, sainthood, peace comes from God. Doesn't come from us, comes from 
God as it is accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, note how Paul refers to God there. This is for us. This is for you. Note how he refers to God there for the redeemed. He he is our father. Did you catch that? He's your father, Christian. Your father. He's personal. God is. He's relational. He's family. God is not a thing or an it. Nor is he unapproachable by us. That's the whole point of the veil ripping when Christ died. We are that are redeemed get to call God our father. Our father. Go up to some king or some personal acclaim and call him your father. See how they treat you. Call your best friend up at 3 o'clock this morning just to talk to him about how you're doing and some things you want to ask of him that next day. See how they treat you. But you know what? God, your father, is happy to hear from you at 3 o'clock this morning. Glad to hear from you because he's your father. He loves you. He loves you. He gave his son for you. This is amazing. God is our Father. We get peace with Him. But also grace leads to peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, we see here, friends, is no tribal deity to Paul. He's no tribal deity. He is no Savior that we can manipulate to get what we want. Jesus is no sugar daddy that we can tap, tap into to sort of get what we really want. You know, if I love Jesus today, I, y'all have heard me say this many times when I used to play baseball. If, you know, if I messed up, I would love Jesus, read the Bible, pray a prayer so that I'd, I'd get a couple hits. Like literally in the baseball game that night. That's how I would, that's how I treated Jesus. You know, there are people today that will preach literally. There are pastors that stand in pulpits, open up a Bible, and tell them that the gospel is if you just believe enough and love Jesus enough, he'll give you a BMW. That's a lie from Satan. The goal is peace with him, enjoyment of him. And if there's things above him, well, then that's our God. But Jesus is not that way to Paul. Jesus, we see in this passage, is the Lord. He's not a Lord. He's the Lord. All authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. And aren't you glad that it has? His authority extends beyond the laws of any state or governance. He can stop storms with his but a word. He can heal diseases by the mere touch of a robe. The demons bow down to him. He can turn one Big Mac value meal into a a feast that feeds the throngs. That's how powerful Jesus is. That's how great he is. He can do that with just a flip of the light switch for him. But most of all, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord even over sin. Sin. He is able to move our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And if that's not great news, guys, guess what? He likes doing it. He enjoys doing that. And so yes, the glory of the church is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The posture of the church is as servants. The members of the church are saints. The officers of the church are servant-hearted, God-saturated overseers and deacons. The message of the church is grace that leads to peace with God who is the glory of the church. And so you see why, guys, the church should be understood to be something more potent than the Allied Army of World War II. Because when a church gets this, I don't care how many people are in there, When a church gets this, nothing can stop them. That's a promise from God Himself. Amazing truths. Because the church has the power of God, Paul says in Romans 1.16. The power of God. And so, if you have never known this kind of love, this kind of power, this kind of forgiveness, this kind of peace, then friend, can I invite you to love Jesus? Come follow Jesus. Come follow Jesus. 
have him to be your Lord. Lay down the fact that the ways in which you've tried to be the Lord and make him the Lord. Call him uh, Lord and call yourself a slave of him. And go to him and ask him to forgive you of all of your sins. You say, well, Nathan, I thought you said the Lord opened Lydia's eyes. How does that happen? Well, listen, friend, if you feel that the beauty, the glow, the grace, the mercy, the beauty of Christ, well, might I suggest that he is opening your eyes right now. Trust him, believe him, follow him, and come to be a part of his church, his people. But if you are a Christian that is never committed to his church, can I encourage you to talk to somebody about that? I understand there's all kinds of questions you probably have. There is no, let me be clear about this. There's no formal aspects to church membership in the Bible. We don't think that here at Restoration Church, but we do think it's important to try to make it clear in a culture that doesn't make it so clear. So talk to someone. If you're a Christian that is never committed to Jesus' church, where you can be saints with one another, with the overseers and the deacons, then let me encourage you to talk to somebody. And if you already have committed to this church, then brother, sister, may I encourage you, may I encourage us, Restoration Church, let's enjoy the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's then, as we enjoy that in unity with one another, enjoying the unity that we have in Christ, let us then, as we enjoy that together, let us then advance that gospel to Washington, D.C., to your neighbors and to the nations. And let's do that with glad-hearted joy as we go about the process of making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ here in Washington, D.C. and around the world. Make the Lord's joy complete or make Paul's joy complete by being of the same mind and of the same love. And do it for your joy and for the glory of our great God. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, we thank you for grace that leads to peace. We thank you that that grace that leads to peace came from you as it was secured by your Son and applied by your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. We thank you, God, for this wonderful gospel that gives us peace with you. May we enjoy that as a church. May we maintain that unity and purge any evil from among us starting with ourselves. And God, as we do enjoy that unity, may we then advance this gospel to the all the ends of the earth. Let us not say with our mouths that you are the greatest of all things and then treat others as though they are. God, may we be a church that stands on the rock of Christ Jesus and no matter come hell or high water, we stand and say, my allegiance is to Jesus Christ, my King, and I beg of you to come and join us. May that be our posture as servants. Thank you, God, for this wonderful letter. Grow us up, mature us through it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.